Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Welcome back. This is Hour 2 of Mornings with Carmen. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for today and tomorrow for Carmen LeBurge, who is away on a speaking engagement in Houston, Texas, uh, talking about her book, uh, Bringing Truth into Everyday Conversations, as we talk with one another about our faith journey, more than just the small talk of the day, but to continue to bring Jesus into our lives day in and day out. Great first hour with Ben Johnson. You can catch that on our Faith Radio website if you missed some of the headlines that he covered. So much going on in our world as well. And we've also been talking a bit about some of our favorite hymns, maybe for those of us that are 45 and older that would have maybe grown up in church environments where hymns were sung each morning. And uh, some of those hymns, I was I was in uh, Scotland last weekend and worshiping with some fellow believers in a church in Scotland. And we sang the old song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, Oh, What a Foretaste of Glory Divine. And uh, for sort of the first time in my own life, that foretaste of glory divine really hit me in a different kind of way, that as we say yes to following Jesus in this world, one of the great great gifts that God gives us in that is what's called the deposit of the Spirit, which is sort of a guarantee of our future inheritance. It's like we we get 10% or so of what is the life to come, and theologians talk about that dynamic as the now and not yet tension in which we as believers live, that that we it, there is a not yet that is to come in which Jesus will set all things right, and this world will be healed, and the trees, uh, the leaves of the tree, as Revelation says, will be for the healing of the nations. And that's the not yet, but we do get a little bit of that not yet in the now, and that is sort of the, the reference to the eternal life that Jesus promises. It's an indestructible kind of life that God gives as a gift in this life. And Paul Pro, that is the thing, as we talk about these headlines every morning on these morning shows, that again, makes this different than a Fox News or a CNN or something along those lines, as there's really an anchoring to a kingdom that's bigger than the kingdoms of this world. That's the important thing. We are part of something much larger than, than here than this world, than our nation, our state, or our, even our family, believe it or not, because we're part of a larger eternal family. I mean, as Ben was talking about last hour, you're part of a kingdom. You're you're connected to all believers, not just those here on earth, but all through past history. To, we're part of a larger community, uh, the bride of Christ. Yeah, and it's part of what, even just walking into the studio in the mornings, early morning like that, that gives us such great heartening to the soul, is there's pictures on the wall as you walk into the studio of people who have been part of this kingdom. And even though, it, and it reminds me of that passage from Hebrews 11, where it says that Abel, though dead, still speaks. And there's this idea that mm-hmm. as you've walked out this journey of faith in this life, that uh, you can try to leave behind money, and you can leave behind positions, and your inheritance, and try to take care of your family. And all of those things, I suppose, are important in certain kinds of ways. But it's that life of faith when you're anchored to a bigger story that began all of those many centuries ago uh, when God created this world and, and being part of his eternal redemptive story, the only one that knows no end, that as you anchor yourself in that, your life continues to speak even after 
after this life. And and uh, it, it heartens people like you and me and those of you listening, I'm sure, around our listening audience that are dealing with so many different things in our lives. It, it is that place that actually brings an authentic kind of peace that circumstances simply can't provide. And so as you're listening this morning, hope you take that as an encouragement that regardless of what is happening in life, however hard, however triumphant it might be, that there really is a kingdom that knows no end. And I know that our next guest that we're, I think, Paul, trying to hunt down at this point uh, is We should author. have her in a few moments here. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, and then Jennifer Greenberry, she, she can certainly bear witness to this. She has released a book that is called Not Forsaken and really grateful that she was willing to break the silence on what is perhaps one of the most difficult issues that somebody can face in their life, and that is the issue of sexual abuse. It's one of those hidden realities that I think is far more prevalent than we know. And so looking forward to after a short break here, talking with Jennifer Greenberg about a little bit about her own story and also to where she found hope in this and, and where she found some healing. And for those of you listening that have been through something similar or know people as well, stay with us here because there is hope in God's kingdom, regardless of how difficult the circumstances might be. About 12 minutes before the top of the hour, or after the top of the hour, I should say. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner, and delighted to be joined at this time by author Jennifer Greenberg, who released a book called Not Forsaken. And Jennifer, I have to say, this is a pretty courageous book that you've written. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Before we get in the book, I do have to ask you a quick question. A part of your dossier says that you listen to heavy metal music. Are we, are we talking about <laughs> like my old school 1980s kind of heavy metal or some of the current stuff? I, I'm sort of intrigued here. Oh, no, no. Um, I actually, one of my favorite bands is a band called Demon Hunter. They're actually, <laughs> they're actually a, a Christian uh, heavy metal band. And yeah, I, I don't know. I got into it when I started dating my husband. I guess he was a bad influence on me. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I have to say, I don't often see that in an, in an author's bio. So that, that's outstanding. Well, again, thanks for joining us. I was uh, anticipating the segment quite a bit. I know as I teach uh, sexuality here at the University of Northwestern over the last seven years or so, one of the things that really, and I've referenced it before, but it took my breath away, was as students began to share their stories. And I might have 30 students in this class in any given semester, and I would say a, a full 10% of them or so, if they crack open a bit, they do talk about stories of abuse. And uh, it just sort of was a, this wake-up call and, and made me kind of feel a bit like a canary in a coal mine to say there's a lot more happening that is so difficult in people's lives that really needs to come to light. And that's what you did in this book. I mean, tell us about sort of what the steps were to go from your experience of abuse to actually coming into the light with this book and what you hope from it. Absolutely. Well, I uh, wrote Not Forsaken, um, I guess, probably about two years ago, but I'd been wanting to write a book for probably a decade. And um, I just, I think part of it was I wasn't to a place in my healing where I even knew um, what had happened to me or how to put it into words. And so I needed to come to a place in my recovery where um, I had accepted it and where I was recovered enough that I could look back on it objectively and explain it. And the other thing that happened was I wanted to try to explain to my husband how I was feeling and why I am the way that I am. And, you know, of course, with a difficult topic like this, it's much more easy to write it down mm. than it is to talk about it face to face. And so 
I began writing Not Forsaken as a series of letters to my husband to help him understand me and um, know some of the more personal details of my past um, and also how I was healing. Um, and then I, I began to realize these letters were chapters, and I began actually learning more about myself as I wrote, and of course, more about Jesus Christ and how he had worked in my life. Um, it was, and it was just amazing. It was a profound, uh, growing experience. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer, when you talk about that and just sort of the experience of writing these letters to your husband and in your past and relative to your future, uh, can you talk a bit about, I know some of the things that my students are really concerned about, and I'm guessing it was part of the equation for you and for anybody who's listening that has some significant sexual brokenness in their past is how do you not have your past sort of define everything then about your future? Because there's a sense in which these, this event or these events happen in my life. Now I'm sort of stained forever, but that's obviously not true in God's kingdom. And and mm-hmm. how did that help sustain you or did that sustain you? What are some of the ways in which you walk through these really dark times with that? Um, well, you know, I, I really clung to the idea that God is my father. And of course, you know, as a child abuse survivor, um, I had a very different idea of what even meant to be a father. Um, you know, I tended to think of a father as someone who was angry or, or strict, or more worried about the rules than they were worried about their relationship. Um, but of course, that's not who our Heavenly Father is. Mm-hmm. So you'll actually find a whole chapter in the book dedicated to relearning what God means when He calls us His Father and overcoming anger at God. Um, but I think a lot of it, at least for me now, is being able to relate more with Jesus than I do with my abuser. Um, you know, Jesus was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was slandered and lied about, and he was beaten up and he was crucified. And so when I came to realize that Jesus is an abuse survivor, he's the ultimate abuse survivor, he's a death survivor, I was able to realize, you know what, this is not something that I need to be ashamed of. These are things that were done to me. They were things that happened to me. They were not something that were my fault. Um, and God himself, who is holy, the holy son of God, can relate to how I feel. And you write as uh, one of the phrases in that, too, as you interacted with God and sort of re- and reoriented your life in his kingdom. You write a pretty compelling phrase here that uh, the truth that stings ultimately brings relief. And so in your own healing journey, as you begin to interact with the truth of who Jesus is and what he experienced and who God is, and he's not sort of this uh, awful deity in the sky that maybe sometimes we superimpose our heavenly father or our earthly father mm-hmm. experience on. I mean, what did you mean by the truth that stings ultimately brings relief? Well, you know, I really had to wrestle with the idea that God is sovereign. You know, he could have he could have stopped what was happening to me. He could have he could have changed my abuser's heart. He could have struck him dead, you know, just I mean, he's God. Mm. Um and so I had to come to terms with the idea that God is sovereign, but he chose to give my father free will. He chose to let my dad choose to be evil. And he, he, but he also shepherded me through those dark times. You know, you really, that line in Psalm 23, you know, you shepherd me through the valley of the shadow of death. And God really does that. He gets down in the trenches, um, just like the good Samaritan, when he sees the guy beaten up on the side of the road, 
You know, he doesn't require him to clean up first. He doesn't require him to get himself together. He gets down in the dirt and the muck on the side of that, you know, that that dirt road. And he picks the person up with all their bruises and their cuts, and he takes care of them. And so, you know, we really, we have a God who is sovereign, but we also have a merciful God. And, but he's also a just God. And, you know, I fully believe that he will judge evil. And, and if my abuse, my abuser never repents, then, you know, he will be judged by God. Um, but I can take great comfort knowing that God loves me um, enough that he sent his son to represent me. And so when I come to see my father in heaven, um, it will be without any shame. Hmm. or spot or wrinkle. Well, in a second, I think, Jennifer, that uh, really is, it, it bears witness to a kingdom that is different than anything we can find in this world. So hmm. we're talking with Jennifer Greenberg, author of the book Not Forsaken. When we come back from a short break, I know one of the realities that happens in the midst of abuse and is uh, pretty significant depression and even some suicidal tendencies. And I know that was part of your raw journey as well. And I would love for you to talk about that and how you came through the other side of that, just even as an encouragement to those listening that are struggling with those same kinds of thoughts. So we'll be back with more from Jennifer Greenberg and her book, Not Forsaken, next on Mornings with Carmen. So Paul Perot chose that music uh, in honor of Jennifer, Jennifer Greenberg. I mean, I have to admit, Paul and Jennifer, I'm experiencing some significant cognitive dissonance here because I've heard that heavy metal, you should stay away from it. And yet it's Demon Hunter. It's a Christian band. Jennifer, I don't know what to do with this. Can, can I actually like heavy metal music if it's Christian? Help me out here. Absolutely. Well, it's Demon Hunter. They're hunting demons. So obviously it's good. Oh, I love it. All right. I will try to listen several times. It'll be a bit of an acquired taste because you like black Check licorice as well. So, I, I mean, do. I yeah. Have strange taste. Yeah. We're Check gonna... out one of their ballads, though. Like, I am a stone. Okay, Paul Perot. Like, like that, yeah. Sometime um, in the next 45 minutes, I need to hear a ballad, if there is such a thing, from Demon Hunters, Heavy Metal. I love this. <laughs> uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us on such a difficult and but uh, wildly important topic of sexual abuse in terms of how prevalent it is. And I, and I know as you have had to walk through it and taken the courage to write this book, uh, one of the things that you dealt with, which it would actually be really surprising if you didn't deal with this, is, is sort of a, a spiral into depression and ultimately some suicidal thoughts. So tell us even a little bit about that spiral what sort of you were experiencing day to day and how that spiral finally broke for you and you could start kind of moving upwards instead. Sure. Yeah, I actually, I wrote the chapter about depression in my, in Not Forsaken um, as an allegory. So if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, mm-hmm. um, it's the character of depression um, is walking with me through a valley and, and I'm also talking to suicide. And so just as we walk along, they're talking to me and they seem sympathetic and they seem understanding. They seem like they care, but really they're just reinforcing all of my fears, all my insecurities. So, you know, if I feel like I'm not loved by someone, they reinforce that. Um, so, and of course this, this just goes on and on and it kind of snowballs until we're to the point where they've given me a logical argument why my loved ones would be better off without Ugh. me in their lives. Wow. And um, it's, it, it's a terrible place to be emotionally. One of the things that I found very um, disturbing, but also very 
incredible about talking with so many other survivors because I, I spoke with probably over a hundred survivors as I was writing this book, um, just comparing stories, identifying common challenges. And one of the things that they told me was that, you know, these, these feelings of depression and suicidal thoughts very often follow the, the same pattern. It's reinforcing your fears. It's, it's making you feel like really that suicide is the best, most practical, most loving thing you could do. And that lie is, is, um, is what's so dangerous. Mm. But I found that, you know, again, when I relate my pain with Christ, you know, we read about Jesus when he wept for Lazarus and Jesus when he was so distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweated blood. I mean, I've been in some stressful situations. I have never sweated blood. Mm. So I can be 100% certain that Jesus Christ understands my sorrow and my anxiety and my fear and my apprehension. And so, again, when I, when I re- try to relate my suffering to Jesus, that is such a healing thing because you're no longer isolated in that pain anymore. That is a really profound thought, Jennifer. I think people don't always understand uh, for when, when you move into those places of suicide that so often it's represented by a hopelessness. But in your case, it was represented by sort of this lie, this belief that everybody else would be better off. It was almost altruistic in, in sort of mm-hmm. the sense of the lie. And so it's so helpful. I'd be curious, we just have a couple minutes left here, too, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, people coming around you. I know it's one of those things that I think people feel very disempowered at times in terms of how to help people that have experienced such trauma or in the midst of these difficult thoughts like that. Do you have any suggestions for the caregivers and the people and the loved ones around somebody who's struggling with these things or has this kind of past? Sure, absolutely. Well, I would say, you know, don't he- don't hesitate because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing. You know, sometimes we don't have the right words or we just don't know what to say. And that's all right. You know, when um, when the Good Samaritan picked up the guy in the dirt, he didn't have any profound advice on how he could handle the trauma of being robbed. He um, in fact, he outsourced. He took the guy to an innkeeper who took care of him. So, you know, sometimes when God gives us an opportunity to help someone, all we have to do is listen. All we have to do is love. And if a situation is beyond us, it takes great humility and wisdom to recognize that and say, okay, I've never experienced this. Let's go talk to my pastor or let's go talk to my friend over here who has been through this. Let me help you find a counselor. Let me take you to a doctor, whatever it may be. Just be with that person. Let me go with you to the police station. We'll file that police report. I will hold your hand. Um, just being there is, again, we talked about the isolation of depression, abuse and pain are isolating. And so just having you there is so much more effective than any words you could ever say. And you're an incredible blessing. Hmm. Jennifer, that's just a little piece of what's in your book that I think could be so encouraging and so helpful. It's the book Not Forsaken, and it's uh, just this beautiful book you wrote about your own journey of sexual abuse. And Jennifer, where can people that would be interested in this book, where where can they find it? Absolutely. It's on Amazon. Um, It's online at Barnes & Noble. Uh, The Westminster Theological Seminary Bookstore has it, christianbooks.com. 
Um, and of course, my publisher, thegoodbook.com. I love it. Again, the book, if you're listening, is not forsaken. I can't recommend it enough in the situation. And Jennifer, as we head to break, Paul's got a little special gift for you, some sort of ballad of heavy metal oh. Christian music, and I'm going to have to try to decide what to do with this during the break. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you just missed our last segment or were listening and didn't quite uh, get the copy of the book title, uh, we just talked with author Jennifer Greenberg in her book, Not Forsaken, which is a story of a woman who survived sexual abuse and not just survived, but uh, was able to experience some of the unusual kinds of healing that is only available in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that our past leaves us. It doesn't mean we get a spiritual amnesia, but it does mean that in the midst of our brokenness and our fragmentation, there is a hope and there is a peace that can somehow persist in unexplainable ways. So highly recommend a copy of her book, Not Forsaken. And up next year on Mornings with Carmen, we'll be joined by Mark Lagan, who is the Chief Policy Officer of Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. And I'm going to get a bit, bit of an update on what's happening with malaria and why we can't seem to get some traction from a global standpoint to help eradicate this disease. So we'll get his perspective next year on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for the morning. While I applaud parents who put child locks on TV channels and safeguards on the Internet, the reality is that kids can and do access inappropriate content elsewhere. Hi, I'm Mark Grakeston with Parenting Today's Teens. More than ever, parents and teens need to have frank discussions about things like drugs, sex, and alcohol. Surprise your teen by cutting to the chase. You may think such topics are uncomfortable and inappropriate, but that won't stop kids from talking at school, texting each other, and posting things online. So stop trying to completely shelter your teen from worldly influences. Believe me when I say it doesn't solve the long-term challenge. Rather, start training your child to guard his heart. The rewards will be rich as you watch him develop into a responsible, godly young man. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. I don't know, Dr. Mark Legon. I, I don't know where Paul Perot comes up with this bumper music here. I mean, is this, is this right in your musical genre? Is this is this what you listen to? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a little farther north than you, but no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I love it. Okay, what is your groove? What's your uh, what's your jam? Uh, uh, I, what's my groove? Well, to be honest, I'm I'm an old school. I like you too, and I I met Bono very early in the fight against AIDS, tuberculosis, oh. and malaria. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So, oh wow, what a, you know, what a global figure to me too, who's really given so much of his life and, and his career and, and the fruits of his career to such a fight. And that's part of what you do, obviously, on behalf of the friends of the global fight against AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And be curious as we were preparing for this segment, I was thinking on the way in this morning that for me, malaria, malaria was such a childhood kind of disease in the seventies and eighties. And you know, there's mosquito nets and insecticide and stuff being done. And I guess, uh, Mark, I would have thought that something like malaria would have some pretty significant technological advances by now that we would have eradicated it in some way. And, and it seems to me that there really hasn't been a lot of progress made to this point. Well, um, it, it's a glass half full, glass half empty. You know, in 1969, when we, when we managed to land a man on the moon, it was actually in that year that we decided to, as the U.S. government to set aside the goal of malaria elimination as a, uh, a goal. And it's one that 
a commission put together by the famous uh, medical journal, The Lancet, has argued that we need to go back to. But on the other hand, um, President Bush stood up the President's Malaria Initiative and uh, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, with which I work, um, have made uh, some really mar remarkable progress. Um, you know, in the last uh, uh, couple decades, since 2002, malaria deaths have dropped by 46%, for instance, in the places that the Global Fund has worked. Um, but uh, there are always dangers of resurgence. Uh, and in the, you know, in four countries in Africa, they have, you know, the bulk of the, you know, the problem of the um, global burden of malaria. So we need to deal with it everywhere if we're going to deal with it anywhere. And what are some of the stats, Mark, in terms of uh, the effect it's having? And it sounds like a lot of it is concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa, but we're not talking about uh, just a small impact. I mean, obviously, when something like Ebola comes up, it gathers all the headlines, and it is a devastating illness on every possible level. But from a comparative standpoint, just statistically, many, many, many more people are being deeply impacted by malaria and dying from it. Yeah, just last week, uh, I had um, the British banker who heads this uh, global fund uh, to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria here in Washington. He was talking to a, a, a Republican congressman from Texas. He says, you know, he travels in Northeast Africa and he's talking to them about Ebola and how the international community wants to help on that. And the local health workers and uh, Christian uh, charity leaders say, well, you know, we got a bigger problem with malaria um, and we're glad for help. But, I, you know, again, we should look at this mixed picture, how we need to just move forward with more, I guess, you know, it's sort of better to think about a story of how it affects someone. Um, in in Mozambique, you know, where they speak Portuguese because of the their colonial ties uh, of the past, um, a woman named Ana Maria Texiera, she's about 41 now, um, she lost her eldest daughter five years ago. Uh, she didn't know enough to rush um, her daughter to the uh, to the hospital. She went to a healer and then, you know, should have rushed. And, you know, it's only what she learned later from a faith-based group called Programa Interregulosa Contra Malaria um, that, you know, what she should have done. And so she's now committed herself to teaching others along with that faith-based group about what they should, uh, can do. Um, if, you know, half of sub-Saharan Africa now has access to malaria bed nets for kids to sleep under, they stop the simple mosquito bite that leads directly down the road to people dying of malaria. Well, and it's an incredible dynamic, too, that's happening just day in and day out, uh, if you can actually get into the ground level of it. And it's something, again, as you and I were chatting at the break and kind of prepping for our time together, it's it's one of those things that, for me, always seems sort of like out there. But I, I began to personalize a little bit and say, hey, you know, if one of my five children gets sick, there's ready resources all around me. I could take them to an urgent care if it's overnight. I can take them to an emergency room. I can take them to their general practitioner. I can take them so many different places with just the, the simplest of procedures to help if they're feeling unwell on some level. But that's really different than what so many people are experiencing in the locations where malaria is so, uh, it, it just is running so roughshod. So give us a sense of maybe a day in the life of somebody. What is it like at the ground level when a mosquito will bite somebody and what happens from there? Well, it can move, you know, very quickly to a child or a young woman or, or anyone um, getting a bite, uh, a fever emerging. And for some, 
suddenly someone dying. I'll tell you another story, um, but it's also a, a kind of a story of hope. Um, it's a man named El-Hajj Diop. Now he's, he's a 65-year-old guy in, in Senegal. He was a, a photographer, and 20 years ago, um, his daughter uh, was bitten and, uh, you know, by a mosquito, and he was out of town, and uh, you know, within three days, she died. Um, and he just decided to set aside his entire career and start a civic group that would teach largely illiterate um, people uh, in Senegal, a French-speaking Senegal. Um, you know, he said, uh, I have a quote here, Ami's death, his daughter's death, was very a very difficult situation, so he didn't know about the disease at the time. Um, but it was at that moment that I, I said, I have a mission. Um, it means reaching out to people and informing them of the disease. And so the Global Fund uh, to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria works with him and others um, to reach out. So in his country, in 1999, the death rate from malaria was 37%. Now um, it's 1%. So it, you know, the needle can be moved by people of conscience, faith, and uh, smarts. I'd love to hear more about that, Mark. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, I'll ask you a couple different things. One is about a pretty hopeful new vaccine that seems to be at least promising on the horizon. Some news about that came out last week. And then also, too, what it means as we as believers, uh, what it takes to develop the kind of heart of compassion that begins to naturally move in these situations. So it's not one of those things where we feel an obligation to move, but we really understand our brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering and, and how we develop that heart of compassion. So look forward to more conversation here after a short break with Mark Lagan here uh, talking about malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. It's a beautiful day. Well, there you go, Mark. Paul Perot, spot on as always. Nice you call. ask, he comes through a little YouTube and beautiful day. And, you know, Bono really has had a pretty significant impact as a vi visible figure these last 30, 40 years on these worldwide epidemics, hasn't he? He sure has. I met him originally when he came to see the late Senator Jesse Helms, for whom I worked, and got him concerned about uh, orphans and, and women being affected by AIDS around the world. I actually went with Jesse Helms to a concert and heard that song played by you, too. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Well, love the work that you're doing. And uh, there's been some pretty recent updates you even have, too, in terms of the work of the Global Fund and, and how it's been impacting the situation of malaria around our world, and specifically in Africa. Tell us about it. Yeah, the Global Fund is a mini World Bank that the U.S. is very generous. Uh, the U.S. gives uh, uh, you know a, a, a large portion of its funding, but because Congress limits how much it can be, it forces other countries to to kick in. Uh, it came out with its report just this morning, its annual report on its impact on AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. The Global Fund conservatively calculates that since 2002, it saved. 32 million lives. Wow. But there's still a problem on malaria. And malaria, the latest uh, year's statistic, 435,000 people died of malaria uh, back in 2017. Two-thirds of them were, were children under five. It's still the case that a child dies from malaria every two minutes in the world. Um, so despite the fact that Global Fund, like, you know, for instance, distributed 130 million mosquito nets last year for kids to sleep under, there's still much to do. Well, and in light of that, too, it sounds like there's uh, some pretty groundbreaking vaccines that are on the horizon, if not outright out there, that could make a pretty dramatic impact in the fight. Yeah, the, you know, the game changers are innovation. Uh, you got to fight 
there are, you know, the drugs for malaria and the insecticides, they become resistant strains of malaria, so you got to stay ahead of those. But in Uganda, the first, um, you know, effective vaccine is beginning to be used in rural areas uh, on young children. Um, you know, sometimes uh, there are innovations that are happening and they're first being introduced in, in some of the um, uh, less developed places in, in the world. And uh, funding, focus, and heart are necessary to get that kind of innovation. Well, and I think about believers listening here uh, to the the show this morning, and again, malaria seems like it's something that is just a million miles away and maybe not relevant to daily life, but I have to confess that uh, yeah, I've been a believer since I was six years old, but I'm not sure that I ever really experienced authentic compassion for another person's suffering until maybe even well into my 30s, where I began to be a little embarrassed by the fact that uh, you, you kind of just can can become dull in the spirit to what's happening, and there's so much that's going on that needs attending to. And so what do you, in terms of developing that kind of heart that then leads to giving and helping resolve some of these issues, I mean, what has your own journey been like with that, and what do you suggest for people? Well, you know, let me pull this out of, you know, career type stuff to tell my own personal story. You know, I was baptized, uh, but really pulled into the church by my wife of 29 years, uh, you know, when we were, were dating and I, you know, I became an Episcopalian and Anglican. Uh, it, it, yeah, and I had the grace of a year ago meeting five bishops from Southern Africa or from Zambia, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Angola, and they were all working on fighting malaria in their countries. Um, and it really had me understand the impact on children and families, how changing behavior and informing people is so much more effectively done by people of faith. And that in Africa, the, the, the biggest network of people who can help uh, and reach those who are most in need and most vulnerable and most remote are churches and faith groups. Um, and th these bishops working with the U.S. government and its President's Malaria Initiative and with the Global Fund on doing that. Well, one of the fascinating dimensions about Christianity in Africa, it seems to me as well, and I'd love for you to speak to this, is I know my father does quite a bit of Bible translation work across the African continent and visits there two, three times a year. And he talks about, in light of profound need like this, it's really common for churches of different denominations to come together focused on fighting the same thing. And that's often different than the Western world, where, you know, unfortunately, there's so much division that happens from denomination to denomination. Is that part of what you see in Africa, is even though there are differences in the denominations, they're working towards a common good like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they know they have a bigger cause, uh, at, you know, than their, you know, specific brand uh, hmm. of, of Christianity. And there are even, you know, is even cooperation between faiths when, you know, then there are places where there, you know, there are uh, Muslims or, you know, other other faiths. That they, they know they have to set things aside and reach, reach believers, you know, of their own faith. Um, I, I just it, there's a message you, you need to have people understand the threat of malaria and and sort of know what they need to do in their household. And it's often churches that can can do that. But then there's a, like a, a big level of awareness. Country after country has taken its foot off the gas pedal of trying to eliminate malaria when it got close. Um, sorry to have a commercial, but it, check out our website, theglobalfight.org, you'll see a report on dangers of resurgence. And in that report, you see cases of Haiti, Colombia, Peru, Guyana, Costa Rica, Bhutan, Nepal, all countries that got close to eliminating malaria. And then they just, you know, 
took their eye off the ball or their heart off uh, the right focus. Um, so there's knowing in your household what you got to do, get that malaria net on your kid and where you can get the malaria net and how to use it. And then there's the big picture. Hmm. Mark, we have just about a minute left or so. And, and give us that website one more time to check out some of the information. I think that's important there. Theglobalfight.org. I want to tell you that um, sometimes our leaders come through for us despite the partisan nastiness in our country. Um, the, the Senate's got, uh, upped funding for the Global Fund um, because it knows it's one of those things that actually works. Foreign aid and multilateral institutions we should be skeptical of. Those that work, we got to ramp up. Thank goodness that our leaders are setting aside their sniping and increasing um, th- uh, funding by 15 16% just so that those kids can be saved. Well, thanks so much for the work that you do and just kind of engaging in some of those really desperate places in our world. Appreciate the update. And one more time, if some of our listeners want to get involved or get more uh, information about the project in Africa, give them a website for that. It is theglobalfight.org. Love it. Thanks for joining us this morning, Mark. We'll look forward to the next time we have a chance to chat. A deep pleasure. We'll take a short break here and wrap up our show for the 19th of September on Mornings with Carmen. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Kapsner, for the morning. Paul, fun to be back with you this morning, yeah, listeners. Good yeah, listeners, been great to be with you again this morning. And Paul, I ha- you know, you do such great work on behalf of everybody else for their bumper music. You were spot on with this heavy metal demon hunter music for our first guest here in the second hour, and now you run in YouTube for Mark uh-huh. as well as part. If you were the guest, what bumper music would we have to pick out for you? I like too much. I don't know. We stumped you this morning. Yes, this, you we stumped me. Stumped you. Now we I mean, also- I grew up. I was a big Ellen Parsons project fan as a okay. kid. So, all right. Well, tomorrow morning when we're back here on mornings with Carmen, let's uh, let's get a little Alan Parsons no. just for you, no. Paul Perot. Oh, I mean, we can we can just take you to that place of nostalgia. But all right, again, see. great to be with you and and listeners. Uh, one of the things that we've been talking about all morning that I hope is an encouragement is uh, the, one of the themes that runs through all of our guests is that they are people who are part of a kingdom that knows no end. And and so in the light of the headlines and the difficult situation of our life, it is that one place that we can find hope is that even though uh, we do even die in this world and suffering and turmoil is part of the deal, there is always another chapter to the story. There is always a future. There is an always a hope in that. And that is why that tomb being empty matters so much. So join us again tomorrow morning where we start this all over again. We'll talk with Matthew Hawkins and public theology and the intersection of theology with the news headlines. Always enjoyable conversation, too, with Adam Holtz, where we'll cover some of the new movies coming out. And then we'll talk tomorrow with author Sharon Miller, uh, the book Nice, and wondering, can Christians be too nice? And I'm really curious what she has to say about that. So again, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner, filling in for Carmen LeBurge. We will catch you tomorrow morning, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.